There's a book that uh, impacted me called The Vanishing Conscience. And uh, from that is a recorded a sad event. 1984, Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before impact, a shrill computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up gringo, and switched the system off. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain. Everyone on board died. Uh, This morning, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 9, and one of the central themes to the first 14 verses is dealing with the conscience. That is our internal warning system that God has given to all of us, believers and unbelievers, to warn us of what we should not do and to goad us along or prompt us to do what we should do. The conscience has been described as a soul distinguishing between what is morally good and bad, prompting to do the former and shun the latter, as one person put it. Webster's Dictionary defines the conscience as a sense of consciousness of the moral goodness and blameworthiness of one's own conduct, intentions, and character. It's an innate awareness of God's law for the Christian, for the believer. It's an instinctive, built-in sense of right and wrong that activates guilt when necessary. All mankind has an innate inner sense of right and wrong. Romans 2, 14 through 15 talks about this. You might want to turn over there to look at Romans 2 really quickly, just to give you a little bit of a sense of this thing. This is the conscience is a big theme in the New Testament. 2.14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, speaking of unbelievers, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse even or even excuse them. Conscience, one person said, is like a sundial. When the truth of God shines on it, it points in the right direction. It's a sundial pointing today to all of us. Conscience is a safe guide. It's been likened to a soft pillow or a best friend. And when our conscience isn't working, we should examine ourselves and see if the volume has been turned down for some reason or another. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, He said it's an independent witness within. And for the believer, it's enlightened by the Holy Spirit. Remember Romans chapter 9, Paul speaking evangelistically of wanting to reach the Jews and being willing to give his own soul for the Jews. Chapter 9, verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. The conscience, it's the Greek word sune desis in Hebrews 9. It's used a couple times there. It means with, soon is uh, used in terms of a symphony. It's a concert of awareness. It's, a, it's being with 
your own internal knowledge, a co-knowledge that is pronouncing judgment or innocence. A lot of talk within the church or within home group Bible studies has to deal with the idea of accountability. And I believe in accountability. I think we should be accountable to one another. We should, as James puts it, confess our sins one to another. But the deepest level of transparency, which provides the greatest amount of personal holiness, is your conscience before the Lord. It is who you are by your lonesome before Christ. It's really the reality of when we stand before the Lord, independent of everyone else, giving an answer for ourselves, either we were in Christ or outside of Christ, that dynamic is now in terms of your personal conscience with Christ who sees everything and knows you. It's a joint knowledge with Christ. And when we sin, we are at war with ourselves internally. This is a theme again throughout Romans, but look in First Timothy. This is this is Paul's discipleship letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy, and then to Titus that speak of the conscience. Chapter one, verse five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. Look at verse 19 of chapter one, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Chapter 3, verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Those are the deacons in the church. Chapter 4, verse 2, speaking of fleeing false teaching, false things that will mess you up inside. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Those who are false teachers, those who have a false moral witness and a false theological witness are those who are seared. They're hardened in their hearts. This is what Hebrews warns against. John MacArthur in his commentary on Romans gave this illustration. He said it's reported that a tribe in Africa had an unusual but effective way to test the guilt of an accused person. I would not do, do well in a situation like this. This is uh, really interesting. A group of suspects would be lined up and the tongue of each would be touched with a hot knife. If saliva was on the tongue, the blade would sizzle but cause little pain. But if the tongue was dry, the blade would stick and create a vicious searing burn. The tribe knew that a sense of guilt tends to make a person's mouth dry and a, and a seared tongue therefore was taken as proof of guilt. The making of such a dry mouth, of course, the work of the conscience. It's our inner judge. It's the, it's the sensitivity system inside of us. And people have a varying degree of a sensitivity factor in their own lives. And it's different with everyone. God's word going in our hearts makes us more sensitive to what God wants us to do. But by contrast, it can also backfire because knowledge can puff up and you can become hardened in your heart and prove calloused with unspiritual scar tissue. There's another um, illustration of this in tropical medicine. Speaking of leprosy, the leper, the leper with a 
bacterium is not necessarily connected to why a leper becomes disfigured. Oftentimes, that's a, there's a secondary cause where the organism's destruction of the nerve fibers that convey a sense of pain and touch, when that's unprotected by the body's natural warning signals, the lepers, leper repeatedly injures him or herself with their extremities, with cuts and burns and infections without even realizing that he or she is injured. This is a picture of what it looks like to have a seared conscience where sin has taken its toll, where the Christian's unconfessed sinful patterns have taken control to the point where that person is not sensitized to what's going on in his or her life anymore, right or wrong, and things just get worse and worse, and that person doesn't even know what's happening to himself or herself. Worse for the unbeliever, of course. J.C. Ryle, one of my heroes, said the conscience is a most important part of the inward man, but it cannot save us. It's not led anyone to Christ In our moral depravity, it's blind and it's liable to be misled. But the conscience isn't to be despised. He calls it the minister's best friend in preaching, the mom's best friend in restraining a child from rebellion. It's the teacher's best friend to get children to obey with moral duties. Happy is he who never stifles his conscience, but strives to keep it tender. Still happier is he who prays to have it enlightened by the Holy Spirit and sprinkled with Christ's blood, which is what we're talking about. The conscience is often deadened, indulged in sin, dulled, stupefied. And so long that Man can get on tolerably, this is Ryle, listen to this, so long as man can get along tolerably well with peace in his heart with God, he thinks he's fine, but once let conscience open its eyes like it's coming to life and shake itself and rise and move and it will make the stoutest child of Adam feel ill at ease. You know what this is like when your conscience is awakened and you feel open and laid bare with your own sin, you've been caught or you've been confronted or you've come to see from scripture, there's something going wrong in your life. Since it's an irrepressible thought that there's a God, a judgment, there's an afterlife, there's death. There's an undiscovered destiny from which no traveler returns. The thought will come up at times in every man's mind and make him long for inward peace. So we're talking about something that is significant, right? The conscience is what we need to not ignore. We ignore it to our own detriment. And I would say it this way, and I was impacted by Charles Haddon Spurgeon this week. I read him pretty deeply on this topic. And one of his banner ideas, and I I completely concur, is that the secret to joy in the Christian life is having a clean conscience, It's moving with your stained conscience towards Christ and finding deliverance, finding help there. We get stymied 
Westminster's Shorter says man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think some of us would say, when's the last time I enjoyed the Christian life? When did I enjoy Christ? When did I feel that my marriage bed was undefiled? When did I feel that my parenting was powerful? When did I last feel that my relationships were without a wrong motive of self-interest? When was the last time that my personal relationship with Christ was fresh, was more than a one-dimensional prayer life, but was living and vibrant? This is all answered in terms of the health or lack thereof of our conscience. It has to do with our consciences before the Lord to become a whole person is to have a clean conscience, to fully live is to have a clean conscience, to really serve and feel joy in service is to be clean in our innermost being. Spurgeon said, having a conscience that's not this is like fishing on dry land. It's just trying things, but it's hopeless or it seems to be hopeless. So how do we break through? How do we break through and draw near to God even with a stained conscience? How do we get out of the vicious cycle of a wounded heart that never gets well? How do we as a believer break free? Well, it's as simple as this. I'll sort of give away the answer before we plumb the depths of scripture. We need to, as believers, openly apply the word of God to our minds, to our thinking, Therein, we are informing our consciences with the gospel. It's as simple as that in terms of what to do. Doing it is the complicated part. Getting there where you really are taking in the word of God to inform your conscience. Because your conscience is a living dynamic within you. And it might be misinformed. You might have false guilt. You might be terrified or paralyzed with something that you can't get over or get through or get past. Am I speaking to anybody now? And you need to use the word of God to inform your life and inform your thinking and inform where you are spiritually before Christ and what you need to do and how you need to feel and how you need to think. It's downloading the doctrine of salvation to kill the spiritual virus in your heart. Your inner man might be glitching like a glitch, a computer glitch. There's something wrong that needs to be corrected and refreshed. And that's where Hebrews 9 is so important to do that. Well, verses 1 to 10, I sort of studied through verses 1 to 14, but I couldn't bring us all, all the way through both. 1 to 10 speaks of Israel's dilemma, their dilemma, their Old Testament, Old Covenant journey that was filled with a dilemma in their sacrificial system. And in Hebrews 9, the author takes that, opens that up, and shows where that was glitching for the nation of Israel, for the wilderness wanderers. And then he, in verses 11 to 14, talks about the new covenant and about what we have in the gospel. Christ, that word covenant, just think commitment. Think of Christ's commitment to you that we have in the church and how we can apply that to our own lives. Verses 1 to 10, I subtexted, It's Israel's dilemma, 
but it's what their high priest could not or could do and not do. What their high priest could do and not do. How far the high priest could take us, but then how limited he was in taking us to where we really needed to be. Listen as I read verses 1 to 5. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. We cannot speak now in detail, should say. For the 21st century mind, let's stop there for a second. It's easy to check out when we start to check into the tabernacle, the tent, because we say that's of a bygone day, a bygone era. It wasn't so far bygone for these readers, though, and that's the connection of application. At the same time, because you are believers filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is the scripture, you need to exercise faith. And use your sanctified imaginations to think about temple furniture, to think about what kind of worship they were encountering, what they were called to do, how they were brought to God under the old covenant and what that meant for them. We need to learn the reverence of the old covenant by the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a problem for the early church to connect with what the writer of Hebrews was talking about. They were of Jewish descent and they were wanting to regress and digress. They're going, I'm not feeling fresh in the Christian life under Christian persecution. Maybe I'm missing something that I left before in the old covenant. And I need to reach back there for something again to bring me back to life. They're wanting to regress to their old ways like many of us do when we find that we're not fresh in Christ or the gospel. We begin to doubt Christ and doubt the fact that he really can cleanse our conscience and help us. The writer is arguing for help for the conscience by comparing the old covenant to the new. So verses 1 to 5 is a layout of the tent or the tabernacle, this, this geographically mobile tabernacle that was with them through the wilderness wanderings. Look at verse 5 again. He basically says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, he's got too much to say, too much of a point to make that he's not going to unpack it for these readers. And they didn't really need it unpacked, but we do, Right? We're not as familiar with things as the Jewish uh, believers would have been. We need to feel the effects of the old system so we can see the significance of it. It's a portable tabernacle. It's at the geographical heart of Israel. Uh, the 12 tribes would, all, would set up in a specific designated way around the tabernacle. 
kind of symbolizing the nation of Israel. Every time it would take camp up and reset it, it would be reestablishing its position around the tabernacle in a very precise way to mark out what God's people, who they were and the tribes they represented. It was a white linen walled uh, court, a tabernacle made of an enclosure with an enclosure of 150 feet around it, uh, long, um, it was 150 feet um, long and 75 feet wide. So think of it in terms of a rectangular structure with the walls being white to depict holiness. Where they practiced was in verse one, you can see it was an earthly place of holiness. That was the point of this in their Old Testament history. So let's enter into the worship for a second. Let's pretend that we are back there and then, and we're needing to offer a sacrifice. There are sins that we have committed. There's things that we wish we would not have done or thought or acted in. They weren't premeditated. They might not have been the most egregious sins, but there was a regularity of worship that was necessary for entering into fellowship with God. Again, they were trying to get to the point of a cleansed conscience through sacrificial worship, and they did this through obedience. Sometimes offerings were given for sins that they didn't even know they had done, whether they had done them or not, but they would still go to worship. So they entered the courtyard And this is what they saw. They saw in the front of the courtyard an altar of the burning offering. So there was an altar there in the front courtyard. We're not talking about the Holy of Holies. We're talking about something that a lay person could access. It had four horns around the altar for which the sacrifice would be tied down. I mean, think about, I can't imagine tying down. I've actually one time did have to hold a goat. I was, I think I've told you this before. My mom used to run VBS way back when and, She um, volunteered me that I was going to be the shepherd boy, David, out in the field, uh, out in front of our church. So she went down the road in our um, Ford Mustang hatchback and put me in the back of that hatchback. And we pulled a goat in there and I had to hold it down. I can't even believe that I'm having like post-traumatic stress disorder right here as I think about it. Hair was going everywhere. The eyes were like the weird sort of, you know, strange um, shapes and they were pink and it was braying at me or bang or whatever. It's horrible. Imagine putting that on an altar, right? So you had to tie this thing down. You had to um, put it on the horns. And um, as far as the layman, they would come here and they would actually lay their hand on the head of the animal. It was a way to symbolize the transference of their sin to the sacrifice. And to the right of all of that was a wash basin. This was where the priest would wash up before the sacrifice was given. If he neglected that, it was to his own detriment. These were priests that were chosen by lot every week to conduct this outer court ceremony that was regularly done. Exodus 30, 21, and then also Leviticus 1, 4 about the layman putting his hand on the offering. Behind the laver or the wash basin was the tabernacle. It was a flat-roofed oblong tent, 15 feet um, in height and 45 feet long. This is what was contained within that wider um, rectangular of 150 feet you know, or so. And then you have the, the, the open area and then you have the tent. 
It's covered in three layers. It had gorgeous woven tapestries all around it with blue and different colors woven in. And overlaid over those layers were animal skins. And the tabernacle was divided with two rooms. Okay, you have the first room and the second room, what the author of Hebrews is talking about. And it was divided by an ornate veil woven of the same colors as those outer tapestries. And it had gold embroidered through it and then also cherubim that were embroidered into the fabric as a picture of holiness and God's presence. So you have the first outer room that's called the holy place. That's verse two. You see, it's called the holy place. And then in verse three, you have the most holy place, which was the inner sanctum the sanctuary that only once a year a high priest of designation would go in and offer a sacrifice for the whole of the group, for all of Israel. Again, Christians, you need to use your sanctified imaginations. We talk about the furniture that was in there. Um, Look at verse 2. It was the first section. It's the first room. This is where you have a lampstand, a table of consecrated bread, the presence that's called the holy place. So what were these things? You have a lampstand. It was made of solid gold. It was three branches from either side, each of its seven branches supporting a flower-shaped lamp holder. Exodus 25 and 37 speaks of that. You have a table called the table of presence where the 12 loaves were placed on this table, designating each tribe. And by the way, the lampstand, the table of presence, the bread, it's all prophetic in a picture of Christ, right? Christ's presence, Christ is the light of the world, Christ is heaven's glory, Christ is the bread of life, Christ is our sufficient savior, he's all that we need. So Hebrews author here is brief in these descriptions because he believes that they know that and the significance of it. And then moving into verse three, he's equally brief about the holy of holies, the most holy place. It's behind the second curtain, the second section or the second room having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, the golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So you have a golden altar of incense. You have an ark. You have a gold jar of manna, the urn, Aaron's staff that had budded. That's the number 17 story where only Aaron's staff you know, showed the budding miracle that designated him as the leader. That was the staff that was used by Moses with all of his confrontation with Egypt. So above the ark were the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement covered. This was a gold covered ark of the covenant, the golden altar of incense, which was representing Christ's presence, God's presence. The cherubim are not necessarily the angels that you would see on the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. These are the cherubim that are described in Ezekiel and Revelation, which are amazing kind of nondescript creatures representing God, representing God's multifaceted attributes. So when you sense the dignity of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard, the first room, The second room, you should sense high and holy worship. We should appreciate the power of the tabernacle. 
We should even appreciate the temptation for Israelites who were converts in Christ to want to hold on to something that had been passing away. The worship in Israel was still ongoing before AD 70. This temple worship was still being practiced. It was continual back in the day, though. Worshippers would bring their sacrifice week by week to the first room, the holy place. Still, God's idea of what his nation should have been in blessing was hindered. What hindered the blessing of God? Remember, you have the, uh, the cloud presence, the pillar presence of God. You have the holy sanctuary that's established again and again. You have tribe designations. What bothered this process? Was the process bad or wrong? No. But it was a stopgap measure for the sins of Israel. It was a temporary commitment, a temporary covenant that was made because of Israel's sin to stem the tide against it. But it was never going to be effective enough to cleanse the conscience. The Christian needs to be able to get into the first room and then get into the second room, which is the gospel that can cleanse the conscience. It's not enough just to be in outer court or first room worship. You've got to go all the way with your conscience to be cleansed. Sin is always the sad hindrance to service, and it was for the Israelites. Israel was in a dilemma. They could not be purged from dead works, which um, the verses following speak of in Hebrews 9. Their conscience could not be purged. They didn't have the personal access that was needed. Why? Because sin hits in three ways. First of all, you're born in sin. You realize that? You were born in sin into a morally fallen world. So as you go online, you're always having to be on guard. Even if you have something like covenant eyes, you still have to be on guard. It doesn't matter. You can't go to the movies and just have your guard down during previews. Your guard has to always be up. Why? Because we live in a fallen world that's trying to sell sin for money. And it wants your money at all costs, no matter what. And so it will become as perverted as possible, as necessary to get your money by enticing your conscience into evil. And feeding evil into your conscience so that you'll want it more and more. It's like eating the wrong stuff and then you can't live without it. And so you want more of it. And so you keep paying for it. And then it's eating your body away physically, right? We know that. We still eat fast food anyway, right? But it's the same deal in terms of our conscience and sin. It was hard. Even in the Old Testament law, I was reading John Owen talked about how susceptible people were to falling prey to being defiled. If you were around a dead person and a lot of people would drop dead, then immediately you were defiled. And he spoke of the fact that if you were in your house and somebody died, it would be undignified. It would be wrong to leave that dead body there. So you had to deal with it. You had to dress it. You had to, you know, bury the body. You had to cover the body up. But in doing what was most dignified, you were still, according to the law, defiled because sin and death are tied together. And God was always making the point that sin is why there is death. And so because of that ceremonial uncleanliness, you had to be made clean again through the ceremonial law. 
It's the general depravity that we're talking about. Just by trying, let me apply this, just by trying to do the right thing, do you find yourself at times stumbling into temptations unawares? You didn't even mean to put yourself in that situation or in that conversation or whatever. And you're going, man, I'm dirty again. And I didn't even mean to be dirty. So you have to bring it to the Lord. And that's the dilemma of the old covenant because they didn't have what we have in Christ. There are the sins of omission, things that we should have done that we did not do. We don't love the Lord, our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time. That's a sin of omission. We're not reaching the standard that God wants us to achieve. We fail in terms of witness and worship and family and friends. These are the woulda, coulda, shouldas of the Christian's life, but even worse for the old covenant believer, the sins of commission or the knowing sins were really worse. The law didn't even provide a sacrifice of cleansing for those. So David's sin that was egregious and deliberate and premeditative, there wasn't a sacrifice for that sin of adultery, for that sin of cold-blooded murder. There wasn't a sacrifice to atone for that in the old covenant system. That's the whole point of Psalm 51. Paralleling that with New Testament situation, if you trample the blood of Christ, if you believe you're a Christian and you're really not, and you harden your conscience to Christ, you're in a worse situation than even the old covenant saint because your premeditative, deliberate, hard-hearted sins of commission are hardening, hardening you even more to Christ because you've been exposed to a lot of light. And if you reject it and walk away, it is self-condemning. It's a big theme in Hebrews that I thought I would just bring up. But look at Hebrews just quickly. Turn over to Hebrews 10, 26. Look at this reference. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the New Testament version of sins of commission that go unrepented of. Our conscience become, can become noisy as we are allowing the scripture to expose us and it also can become hardened. The point of this, Hebrews 9, is that externals do not help this situation ultimately. They don't solve it. Your conscience is not solved in the old covenant system. Apply it forward to today. Your conscience will never be solved by trying to outdo your bad, by trying to do good doesn't work. You can't do enough. You can't outrun your sin debts. Look at verse six. It says, these preparations thus, these preparation having, preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly. This is the ongoing nature of sacrifice and go regularly into the first section, the first room, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the, of the people. Again, this is picturing the limited access that the Israelites had through this system, the first section, the outer tent, and then... The inner tent, the outer tent, continual sacrifices, and then the inner tent once a year. 
It was very limited, very sad in one sense. The blood that had to be shed was not only for the sinner, but also for the high priest who was a sinner. And a lot of times it was for unintentional sins. You see that in verse 7. Verse 8, though, begins to put all this together and interpret it forward for the New Testament Christian. Look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. Look at verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. Stop there. The word symbolic is the word parabole or parable. It's an illustration. And the point that the author is making is to say that our current situation as believers, if we stop entrusting our consciences to Christ and to the gospel to solve our conscience problem, then we're stuck in the first tent. We're just trying to fix things through sacrifices of works. We're trying to get there from here through our own works and our own effort and our own sacrifices. We're trying to deal with an inside problem with an outside solution. We're trying to deal with what's internal with something that's external. And we need to be able to take our hearts all the way through the veil into the inner sanctum, the inner sanctuary of the most holy place. He's saying you're stuck. Christians, Jewish Christians, you're stuck. If you're looking back to the old system, this is symbolic of your present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, verse 9, that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Can't get there from here. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Should all be kind of coming together. The first section was still standing. There was still that kind of worship going on in Jerusalem. But the temptation to go back there was wrong. Tent ritual was not the way forward. That was then, and this is now. That's what the author is saying. Washings, externals, they're not going to help you. It's limited. This is exactly what Jesus taught, by the way, in Mark seven fifteen. Do you remember his teaching? He says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. In other words, by what you eat or don't eat, that's really not the issue. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's out of the heart proceeds the sin. We need to pierce the void that they could not pierce, going in for deeper access to the level of the conscience. What is the Reformation? Verse 10, this is not the Protestant Reformation. This is talking about a Reformation or a setting things straight dynamic. The author is simply saying this. We're in a state of transition. Early church, you were part of the old covenant system. Now Christ has come. You're part of the new covenant system. And when Christ came, it was setting things straight for you. You have an ability to have your conscience 
clear. The big idea of Hebrews is proving that the coming of Christ into the world has put an end to the present time. Applying an old limited access and an external system is wrong. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with Christ. Who do we need to go to with our stained conscience? We need to go right in to see Christ. And we need to learn to inform our consciences with the gospel. Next week, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give an applicational sermon going point by point for how you can apply the gospel to your own heart. As we take communion, we'll be applying the gospel. We will be informing our consciences with the gospel. This is not ritualism. This is biblically based content-driven worship where we are informing our minds and our hearts with truth. And by informing our hearts and our consciences with truth, it should quiet our consciences and reset them or awaken our consciences to things we need to repent and can do business with God over, right? There's a man I read about, Albert Speer, who's a German who uh, once was interviewed by ABC's Good Morning America about his last book, and Speer was a Hitler confidant. He was the closest thing to Adolf Hitler having a friend. He was a technical genius. It was credited with keeping... Nazi factories humming, which was his incessant planning and forced labor, creating stadiums and architecture for events to celebrate Hitler and all of his evil world takeover. Throughout World War II, a government architect organizing rallies. He was considered Hitler's friend. He was one of the 24 war criminals tried in Nuremberg who admitted to his guilt Spar spent 20 years in the Spag Spandau prison, which I think is in East Berlin, maybe West Berlin. His sentence was perhaps lightened by his passive omission to not being fully aware of Hitler's mass execution of the Jews. I watched a video on him where it was his trial where he's talking about this saying, I did not fully know what I should have fully known. He was turning a blind eye and a deaf ear, or at least that was his plea. Only got 20 years for it. ABC interviewer, though, referred to a quote from Spar's earlier writings saying, quote, you have said the guilt, your personal guilt, the guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be. Do you still feel that way? This is after he served his sentence. And Spar had pathos on his face and it was wrenching when he said, quote, I have served a sentence of 20 years and I could say, I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But he said, I can't get rid of it. I can't get rid of the guilt. I think he understood the damage that he had done, the loss, the millions of Jews had been killed by his complicit work. He wrote several books. He was obviously a gifted writer, gifted thinker. Said, he said, this new book is a part of my atoning of clearing my conscience. So the interviewer pressed the point, quote, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally? And Spar shook, shook his head, says, I don't think it will be possible. Spar's writings apparently were filled with contrition, 
They were filled with warnings to not commit moral sins. He sought after a clear conscience, but to no avail. Listen, let me just leave you with this as we go to communion. Believers in Christ are the only people on the planet who can truly have a clear conscience. You think about that? The privilege that we have in Christ compared to the rest is amazing. Believers are the only one who have the access into the inner sanctum, into the Holy of Holies where Christ went, which is heaven as the sacrifice for our sins to appease the wrath of God on our behalf and applying that truth to our lives. We can have our consciences sprinkled clean no matter what we've done.